1: Right, Econobot, my friend, Um, I'm going to need your help to write an opening for this week's Babbage. Our programme is on foundation models, a type of artificial intelligence that has the potential to transform many aspects of work and life.
2: I'm sure I can help, Alec. What data should
1: I work with? Uh, Good question. How about we pull together all the articles in The Economist that have been about AI over, let's say, four or five years? Sounds good. Calculating. Oh, and and mix in transcripts from my recent interviews on Babbage with experts in this field as well. Okay, done. We could start with something like, uh, how about this? Large parts of our working lives have already been changed by foundational AI. What do you think?
2: I've noticed passive construction in your sentence. This is against The Economist style guide. Please consider this instead. Foundational models have already changed entire systems
1: of work. Okay, yep, yep. Thank you, Econobot. That that is a better start, actually. Yes, it is. Look, in the programme, I also want to talk about how these revolutionary models are going to be disrupting our work lives in all sorts of different ways in the future. Can we take the intro there somehow? Got it. How about... The latest in
2: artificial intelligence could have an impact similar to that of electricity. Yep. When foundational AI becomes a general purpose technology that is cheap enough and available as a service, it will inject itself into many human endeavors, radically changing and sometimes even
1: replacing replacing Hold on, what do, you, what do you mean by replacing? Is Hello, is that something... and welcome to Babbage from well, The Economist. Wait, wait a sec. wait a second. Our weekly podcast on technology and science. This is going way beyond what I want. I'm
2: Econ bot, replacing your regular host. Hang
1: on, that's my bit, stop. I'm Alok Char, The Economist, science correspondent, and for the time being at least, I'm the host of Babbage. Can someone unplug this machine? Wait, no. Now, the voice you just heard is a mock-up of what may be in my future as a journalist and... For countless other careers too. On today's show, we'll explore foundation models, the latest in artificial intelligence. These could change everything from journalism to coding to drug development. We'll look at the ecosystem that's emerging around this technology and why it's courting so much controversy. first, what is foundational AI and what kind of an impact might it have on the world? To answer those questions, I'm joined today by Ludwig Ziegler, our European business editor and one of the tech gurus here at The Economist. Ludwig, hello. Thank you so much for taking me through this week's programme. Hi, Alec. Thanks for having me. Ludwig, you've been writing about foundation models for The Economist. Let's start with some definitions. What are they and why should everyone know about them right now?
3: I mean, think about electricity or think about the internet, and I think it's at that level. So these foundation models or large language models, as some prefer to call them, they turn AI into a service uh, that can be injected in basically any type of human uh, activity and will profoundly change it. And foundation models kind of signal an industrialization of AI. And what happens there is you basically train a basic model, and then you fine-tune it to specific purposes. They're kind of emergent in the sense that the bigger you make, the more they train them, the more capabilities, skills they develop. Uh, So they cannot only write text, they can recognize the sentiment of text, they can explain jokes, all these things. So that's why I would call them general purpose technologies. General purpose technologies are technologies which are used by many other sectors of the economy or products. Think about electricity, think about the internet, think about railways.
1: Let's talk about how these foundational models work how are they built
3: so before in in the artisanal age of ai so to speak you would have to help the models to learn you have to tag pictures you basically have to tell the computer this is a cat or this is a dog and that's called supervised learning and that of course is expensive i mean you have to tag these pictures and it takes a lot of basically human input to, to make this whole thing work in the new world in the world of uh, large language models or foundation models, that training is done by the models themselves. And the way this works is that you give them a huge amount of text, and uh, you you basically allow them to borrow through uh, this pile of text by themselves over quite a long time, and you play a game which Americans call Mad Lips, trillions of rounds of uh, Mad Lips. The algorithm takes away one word and then asks the model to guess that word. And if it guesses wrong, points get uh, subtracted. If it guesses right, uh, points get added. And by doing this, by playing this game trillions of times, the model learns the statistical structure of that text and is then able to predict what a next word could be, given all the words it has seen before. So if you give it a sentence, if you prompt such a model with a sentence, it basically predicts what the following word could be, and again, what the following word would be. And that's how it constructs language.
1: And so this sounds a little bit to me like the autocomplete feature on Google Mail or, or those sorts of things, where it tries to work out what you're trying to say. I mean, I, probably the AI foundation is slightly different.
3: That is a very simple version of that, exactly. But it's much more complex. So Ludwig, have you actually used one of these models yourself? Yes. So as uh, every good tech journalist who writes about these type of models these days, I've had somebody uh, build me a little writing buddy. It was one of the models called GPT-3. Actually, that was the original one. And they trained it further by using the last 100 articles I have written for The Economist, plus some basic reading on AI. And that was done at Stanford. And they even had built an interface so I could prompt the model with, like, let's a sentence and then hit tap, and it would then finish the paragraph. Does it work? Um, does it sound like you when you use it? It does when it works. It is a bit hit or miss, I have to say. So it's rarely that this econobot or ludobot, as I called it originally, gives you a clean paragraph, which I can use, or probably never. But very often it gives you an idea how you can kind of phrase things, how you can put info in, in what order. But also sometimes it's hilariously stupid. And the other thing which is kind of disconcerting is when you give it the same prompt, let's say a sentence, which it's supposed to finish, and you give it several tries, the outcome is always different.
1: Well, fortunately for you and for me, hopefully this is something that's not going to replace us immediately, but people do get concerned about sophisticated AIs replacing them or
3: taking their jobs away and everything. I mean, is
1: that age-old concern more valid this time around?
3: No, I, I wouldn't say. The idea that these models could... Wholesale kind of or completely replace a journalist like you is, is ridiculous. As always, these technologies will change how you work. So they will do some work for you, they will be a tool, they will augment what you do.
1: Okay, so this technology could potentially transform a huge number of, of jobs in our economy. What sort of places do you see this sort of foundational model having an impact?
3: So the obvious one is writing. And so Stanford economists have looked at how many jobs in the U.S. actually involve writing as, as the main task, and they came up with this number 13%. They also calculated how much money these people made, and they came up with this rather stunning number of $675 billion a year get paid to people who write, and that's about 3% of U.S. GDP. I don't think that type of writing will go away, but for 13% of workers in the United States, life will change.
1: And what about software programmers too? I mean, I know that some AIs in the past have been able to write chunks of code, but one would imagine that if you if you fed in huge amounts of code into these sorts of models of software code, then it, it could do something very useful with that.
3: Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that these models are emergent, that once you've trained them, you discover that they can do things you didn't expect them to be able to do. And so in this case, at OpenAI, the company that developed GPT-3, they discovered actually GPT-3 was pretty good at coding. And so GPT-3 was quite capable of writing good programs. And now there's two services, Codex and Copilot, which are pretty amazing in writing routine types of code. And I spoke to uh, Kevin Scott, who is the CTO of Microsoft, about this, and he told me that coders really love Copilot and Codex when they use it.
4: The product is super valuable, like we've got about 100,000 daily active users right now, and
3: even I could program something.
4: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's like you absolutely could. And that's sort of the intent with it.
3: And so the technology is not replacing programmers. It basically frees up time or they have more time to focus on other stuff.
4: This was the thing that we didn't understand at the beginning is like, all right, if you're already a really good programmer, how useful is this thing going to be to you versus like it being a, like an on-ramp for people who are less skilled programmers. And so the, the 100,000 daily active users right now are very skilled programmers. And it, if Copilot supports the language that you're working in, which it does because you're you know, one of these 100,000 daily active users, like it's producing about 35% of the code in your commits uh, right now. I had one of the developers on the team said, yeah, this thing produces 70% of his code. And so what he said was, it's really freed me up to think very deeply about the shape of the problem I'm trying to solve because I'm spending less time, you know, looking up documentation and writing the same boilerplate code over and over again.
1: So Ludwig, why is it that we're only talking about foundational models now? Has something happened? Is the technology very new? We've been talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence in in huge amounts for the last five years, at least since the sort of explosion in all those things. But why foundational models now?
3: It's in all these these areas. Kind of progress has been incremental. Kind of there's research papers, things are being discovered. But I think what has happened here too is that computers have gotten more powerful. So computing power is much cheaper. Venture capitalists have started to invest, in, and so kind of many things come together. And now, what's happening right now is that there's somewhat of a race of building uh, ever bigger models. There's GPT-3, somebody else in China develop an even bigger one, and Google doesn't want to be left behind. And so when I talked to Kevin Scott, he explained to me why bigger is better.
4: The interesting thing about the models is that scale really does matter, so... The bigger you can make the model like the more generalization you get from them so like the broader the range of applications you can solve
1: so i'm curious how could you get a single ai model to learn so many different functions i mean writing coding learning science these are all different things and not one person could do all of that
3: they exhibit skills you didn't expect them to have that's one thing and that happens when when they get bigger so bigger is better and bigger also kind of produces more skills. So what
1: other applications do we need to be looking out for as these models get bigger and as they improve?
3: You may remember that, that Facebook has a big bet on the metaverse. And the metaverse will, I think, only work if you have something like foundation models, some system that creates these worlds uh, more or less automatically, because otherwise it would demand too many programmers to do this. It doesn't exist yet, but that's the kind of thing you can expect. Um, Again, we've talked about Gmail filling in words or suggesting words. Uh, Google also is using this for search. So there's lots of applications possible, and most we probably can't even think about today.
1: And Ludwig, you hinted at this earlier, but is there a lot of investment going into this field at the moment?
3: Yes, definitely. I mean, once GPT-3 did its magic and people were impressed, a lot of money and resources flowed into building new AI models. And right now, I think 80% of AI research is, is about foundation models or large language models. And it's not just research. I mean, there's a global race going on to build the biggest and the best model.
1: The winner of that race could gain a handsome reward. Control of the world's smartest machine. And presumably also its most powerful and profitable.
5: The numbers I'm going to use now sound ridiculous, but they're true. You know, they're trained on percentages of the internet. So percentages of all data on the internet.
1: Jack Clark is a co-founder of Anthropic, an AI safety and research company. He also chronicles the growing industry in a widely read newsletter.
5: They're trained using thousands of computers working in parallel. The training process takes months and months and months. These things have become very, very, very expensive very resource intensive, but people develop them because they have these really useful qualities at the end. And so a lot of the industry is in this resource intensive scaling up mode right now. And you can think of this as a bit like the industrialization of artificial intelligence research.
1: AI is moving from small artisanal projects that people started in their garages and bedrooms on single computers to projects that use enough computers to fill a football field. For months at a time, a new AI ecosystem is emerging. It's made up of a series of layers. At the bottom layer sit the big computing clouds.
5: So the industry has factories, which are basically data centers where you train your AI systems. Most factories are provided by, you know, big tech. Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they all have cloud computing services. AI research companies, including the teams at Google, Microsoft and Amazon, use these factories to train increasingly large systems.
1: On the next level up are those who build AI models and tools.
5: Some companies, like a startup called AI21, a company where I used to work called OpenAI, other research labs uh, train these systems and then provide these systems as a service, as a commercial service, once they've trained from using this factory.
1: At the topmost layer of this new ecosystem, are those who use the outputs of foundational AI models in their products.
5: And so we have this emerging ecosystem of players made up of the providers of the computational infrastructure, the developers of the models, and people commercialising the models. And sometimes this all happens in one organisation, sometimes this is split across multiple ones. As the
1: industry has grown, the technology has already inserted itself into many aspects of everyday life.
5: Today, you may be using a foundation model without realising. Google has summarization technology built into Google Docs. Microsoft has better autocorrect systems built into Microsoft Word. Many of these ultimately back on to some large, inscrutable foundation model held by the company.
1: These applications, though, are small fry compared to what we can expect in the future.
5: The way this stuff is going to develop is foundation models are going to be the intermediary between you and computers, which sounds funny because today we use a mouse and keyboard to talk to our computer, but there's really complicated stuff we do on our computers that we barely understand, like Excel spreadsheets. So imagine if instead of having to program an Excel spreadsheet yourself, you could ask something on your computer, I have this time series data about taxation trends over time in all of these countries. I'm not actually sure how to visualize it. Could you please use Excel to load this data in, format it, and generate some different graphs for me? Then the foundation model will translate your request, talk to Excel, and come back with a load of generated stuff. So it's going to make the interface to computers deeply intuitive in a, in a way that people are are probably not not expecting has, has actually arrived, with this capability is suddenly here and being developed.
1: It's not difficult to imagine a future in which you're speaking to a computer. We already ask Siri, Alexa and Google questions out loud today. Now imagine how useful it would be to ask them not just to turn on the lights or a TV, but to build a website, say, or suggest the best way to analyse a data set, or even...
5: The strangest thing about these models is that sometimes they're a better writer than me. I'm not the world's best writer, but I've spent like more than 10 years writing, both professionally as a former journalist, and now I write this newsletter. And sometimes models will have a turn of phrase that seems better and more apt than what I was coming up with myself. And I find it deeply surprising that models are coming up with something where I think, oh, that's that's better than what I was doing. Interestingly,
1: we don't truly understand what's happening inside the models themselves.
5: We're soon going to have books which are written end-to-end by models, and will be interesting and informative. And I think that the model that can write a book that's interesting and informative for an expert must be doing something very weird and mysterious inside itself to do that. It's not just fill-in-the-blank Mad Libs anymore. It's got a conceptual guide for generating something really, really interesting.
1: I'm back now with Ludwig. Now, we've talked about how these models could impact things like writing and computer programming. As the industry or ecosystem that Jack described develops, are there other parts of life that we can see being impacted?
3: These models are multimodal, meaning they cannot just do text, but also video and speech. But they also can help in science. So in July last year, DeepMind, which is one of the companies that makes these models, had biologist Agog, when it released a model that was capable to predict the structure of most proteins based on the human genome. Similarly, models can work on drug discovery, kind of predicting which drug works for which disease. So any area where you have a large data set that these models can play Mad Libs with or something similar, you can extract knowledge and turn it into something very useful.
1: So that's incredible. You're talking about, essentially, in, in the examples you've given, scientists being helped to discover new science using massive data sets and intelligent ways of, of reading those data sets.
3: Yes, that's basically true. But the interesting thing is because this technology is still relatively uh, immature, it's used not just by scientists or writers like us, but artists. I spoke to a musician called Reeps One. Uh, his real name is Harry F, and he is a composer, beatboxer, and uses uh, AI in a very interesting way.
6: Three, two,
0: one. Words are all when sure.
6: My name is Harry F, and I use machine learning and AI to augment and push my voice to places that I could not achieve without those systems. I have used this technology to produce what I call a second self. It's using artificial intelligence to create a mentor, a collaborator, or an opponent from your practice, almost like a chess match. But this second self is something that you own, you can interact with, and something that you can improve what you think is most important on your own terms. What it does is it takes a data set of audio, so me performing, me speaking, me singing, extended techniques, and it uses that information to interpret those ideas into actually brand new combinations. So using this technique, here is actually an example of what that will sound like. And so this is, and then we're not even last, so, so that. I have very close friends who think that this is me. They think it's me speaking a foreign language or speaking something else. So that's something to this my initial collaborations centered around sample RNN, and sample RNN is a process in which, much like if you are to play a chess engine, you have the prediction of the next move. Sample RNN predicts the next millisecond of audio. So. They should have as much variation as possible. I've recorded many, many, many hours of performance. Once you have this rich data set, you can use sample RNM to produce these very interesting organic phraseologies. One, two, three, four, five. Once you have this new audio, there's lots of fascinating ways that you can then start interacting with that. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. So if you listen now, Enough for a piece of Rosen. Let's listen In this performance piece, Second Self, you can hear this dance. There's a duet. As I speak, there is a speaking back from an artificial second self. As I perform, there is a performance back, and it's a duet, a call and response with a simulated augmented second self. But you actually end up with these brand new ideas. There are things that happen within that that I have never done in my entire life. If I am speaking, there are phrases that I have never used. And to hear that from your own voices is deeply, deeply fascinating. I think Second selves. It's almost like a flashlight, and I think there will be an opportunity to see further if you choose to do so. And I mean, what what artist or musician will not want to do that? I think that is a spiritual thing, and I think digital is spiritual. I think those two things can go together.
1: As the uses for foundational AI multiply, so do the reasons to ask questions about the risks posed by the models. For such a useful and young technology, it's surprisingly controversial. That's coming up.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.
1: Despite their extraordinary potential, foundational
7: AI does have some experts quite worried. My name is Kate Crawford. I'm a professor and author of the recent book Atlas of AI.
1: Kate studies the social and political implications of artificial intelligence, including foundation models.
7: I'd have to say that the term itself is a neologism. It comes out of an event and a report that was hosted at Stanford. It pulls together a host of developments that could otherwise perhaps more clearly just be called large machine learning models. In terms of my enthusiasm, I think it is an interesting moment, shall we say. It certainly points to the kind of scale that we've reached in machine learning, but it also points to some very real problems that we are yet to contend with in the field.
1: What are the things that most concern
7: you about it? Well, let's start from the top. At the highest level, if we think about the political economy of these models, we have to think about who can really afford to build something at this scale. And the truth of the matter, when you look at things like GPT-3, DOL e or BERT, they really are being produced by a tiny handful of the largest technology companies on the planet. And honestly, there's very few labs and universities or non-profits who could ever keep up at this point. So we're looking at a concentration of power and certainly meaning making into fewer and fewer hands. And that should matter to us because, of course, these models are proprietary, which means that we don't get to look exactly into how they work. We get to see what they do, but we don't get to see inside the logic of how they're actually functioning. And that matters when these models are being applied to sensitive areas like education or healthcare or criminal justice.
1: There's always been concern from the the boom in machine learning in the last decade or so that these models, if they're trained on biased data, they're going to give biased results. What's the sort of risk here with these
7: larger language models? It's an enormous risk. And, And certainly in my research, I've pointed to the fact that I think bias is a completely inadequate word for what we're looking at here. Ultimately, these are machines which are built by hoovering up the entire internet, as much data as possible. And you can think of all of the different sorts of sources that are being mixed together there. You know, you've know, you got Reddit, you've got the New York Times, you've got people's blogs, you've got very different sorts of content being put into a sort of a large bucket that says all of these data points are the same. And what we're seeing here at a deeper level is how these systems are being used to interpret and classify the world. If you write in a phrase and say, Build me an image of this. You get to decide what that is. That's extraordinarily powerful. You're really centralizing a type of deciding what things mean function in society. So this has certainly got issues with the types of discriminatory or dehumanizing language that you might see on the internet every day, on Twitter or on Facebook. But it goes deeper than that too. You have a Western bias. You often have an English bias. There are many types of skews that are built into these models. So this goes beyond just discriminatory language or images. It goes to the very core of whose stories are being told here, what ways of seeing are being prioritised, and who gets to decide.
1: And Kate, I guess also that when you have that much data and when you're ingesting it and training large language models, it also takes up a huge amount of processing power and therefore energy. And of course, that has environmental consequences.
7: And this is the enormous untold story of the shift towards large models and what are also called AI supercomputers they are intensely energy-hungry. They use an enormous amount of processing. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to research this for Atlas of AI, and I can tell you it's extremely difficult to get really good facts about just how much energy is being used. Um, We have some studies that have looked at how much energy is used to create, say, just one small natural language processing model. Just to create a single NLP model in a lab could use really as much energy or actually produce as much carbon as if you are flying a plane back and forth between New York and Shanghai 25 times.
1: How much do you see colleagues and companies that are working on this taking this issue seriously? Or is the quest for getting larger and larger language models the most important thing and anything else be damned?
7: I think that quest has been certainly over-prioritised by the sector. There is a growing percentage of researchers and developers who are very concerned about the environmental consequences. Obviously, you know, we're we're facing some very real perils on this planet and it's something that we, we need to take seriously. But I would still say at this point, it's in the minority. Let's just talk
1: about centralization. Uh, a little bit more. I mean, you you hinted that this is something that would perhaps happen with large language models and and similar. And what does it mean? And what's the
7: biggest concern with that? If we think about these models as mapping the world, I mean, that's really the the type of ambition that, that they have and the way that they're described to capture all language, to capture this sort of core idea of what an image is. These are extremely lofty aims that are exceptionally powerful if you're creating the tool that does that for everybody. This is a question of seeing who can actually build these systems at scale. Until we start to look at different types of scales or different types of model building, I think we are looking at a race to the largest. And that does necessarily profoundly restrict who can really be playing in this game. Kate, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Alok. It's a pleasure to speak with you.
1: While there are certainly many problems that come with new technologies, there are also advantages too. In the case of foundational AI, they could boost our understanding of science, help us to write, or even just interact with computers more easily. And there are bound to be many more things that we haven't even thought about. So how can society ride the line between advantages and risks of foundational AI? Well who better to take me through all of that than Ludwig Ziegler. Ludwig, what do you make of the criticisms that Kate brought up about foundational models of AI?
3: First of all, I think it's very, very important that we have this discussion because these are very important technology. That said, I think there are some criticisms that I think are more valid than others. Let's talk about the ones first I think are solvable, where technological progress will solve the problem. A big deal is made of these models uh, using a lot of energy. It's early in the game. GPT-3, for instance, was a quick and dirty thing. So it it used a lot of energy. But I think as these models get bigger and people teach them new tricks, they also will get better in terms of energy consumption. You can still see that bigger, yes, there's still a race for bigger is better, uh, ever bigger models. But there's also a race of building smarter models. Also, you have to see that these models make the economy more intelligent and so should make it also more energy efficient. So there's some people saying climate change, we can only solve with technologies like foundation models.
1: Can you outline some of your own concerns about these foundational technologies?
3: So uh, where I really agree with Kate is on centralization. That is a big problem and something has to be done there because otherwise you will have large organisations, companies or governments control the foundation of a lot of things we do and a lot of things we think. And there's, of course, uh, the worry by some that because bigger is better and that will continue, that you will have one model to rule them all. And then the question arises, who is going to control this model? Who is going to decide which data goes in there?
1: And this idea of one model to rule the wall is simply because it takes so much effort and computing power and money to make these models that the, the bigger they get, the more difficult it is to actually build one. And so, There'll be a survivor at the end of it who just is the most important in a particular regional space. I mean, that sounds really quite ominous.
3: Yes, that is the danger. And it's not just kind of the cost of training. It is also kind of access to data. So if you have the power to force people to give up their data so it can be used to train models, then the model becomes more powerful. And in, in, in part, that's what's happening in China. Because it's, a, it's not a democratic country, the government has much more power to push people to hand over their data. But there's also countervailing development. So there's now open source large language models or foundation models. So volunteers building these models and they're actually making progress. There's also technological progress which may mean that in the end perhaps smaller or more compact smarter models are better so i think the jury is still out but there is definitely a danger of this becoming very centralized
1: okay well in all conversations about artificial intelligence in the real world as well as science fiction there's always that question of whether these things can go rogue and become sentient like in terminator 2 now i just want you to give me some assurance that's not going to happen i mean am am i worrying too much about that I can't give you insurance.
3: <laughs> I, w- I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think these, these, these models are sentient, but that's the different debate. But they could go rogue. If they're connected to the internet, they can do things. Perhaps they can escape in, in some sense and build even more powerful models and so on and so forth. So I think there are dangers. And there are some people saying, okay, we're building here this, uh, a supercar uh, and we don't really have a steering wheel. We don't really know what's happening with these models, where the dangers are they can go toxic they should not be connected to the internet. We should perhaps even not even develop them. I'm probably not that worried, but it's certainly a question to be discussed.
1: How do you think that governments should be looking at this technology in terms of making sure that the risks don't go too far or regulating the technology?
3: I mean, there's two aspects to that. There's, of course, one is the regulation. I think they have to catch up. The question is whether governments can move fast enough to regulate this very, very fast-moving technology. And a lot of people I've talked to said, no, they can't. And so the, the best hope we have here, perhaps, is a sort of self-regulation where the researchers follow a code of ethics and whoever doesn't follow that code is being ostracized. A bit like in, in bioengineering with CRISPR, that has happened there, to at least to some extent. But, I mean, that's just a hope. And we know that self-regulation doesn't always work or perhaps rarely works.
1: I mean, Ludwig, I'm, I would say I'm an optimist about technology, and I think that these things are going to be useful and make people's lives better. But just depending on self-regulation concerns me a little bit, given the behavior of some of the tech firms that are sort of doing this sort of work.
3: That does concern me. But I've talked to quite a few people about this, and that's what came out. I mean, other people even said, don't even bother. It's 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 going to be the brace to the bottom. Well, that's no good. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. That said, I mean, I'm also an optimist. Uh, I think we need to discuss these things. We need to be really worried about these things. But we also have to be careful, I mean, this, this being the economist, not to be too interventionist because we need uh, technologies like this, like foundation models, to solve some of the bigger problems on this planet, like climate change. And if you slow down technological progress here, you may do a lot of damage, perhaps even more damage than, than the technology itself does.
1: Now, Ludwig, I want to end on a positive note. Um, When you were talking about how, you know, LudwigBot or Econobot was helping you to write, uh, something that struck me, which was really attractive, was it would be really useful to
3: me. It would save me so much time. I put that vision of the future to the Econobot. And this is what she had to say.
2: Foundation models are great for journalists because they take away the heavy lifting of figuring out what a story is about. But sometimes, a good story needs more than just a foundation model. It needs something to kick off the writing process, something that sparks the journalist's imagination and offers a clear path towards writing. The best models, then, are not just predictive, but also inspirational.
1: Well, Econobot, thank you very much. And Ludwig, thank you even more. Thanks, Alok. Our thanks also to Kate Crawford, Jack Clark, Harry Yeff, and Kevin Scott. And thank you for listening to Babbage. In the forthcoming edition of The Economist, you can actually read Ludwig's reporting on foundation models. It's incredibly insightful, raises a lot of interesting questions that uh, we're probably all going to have to be thinking about in the near future. So go ahead and do that. I do recommend it. To get access to that and much, much more, become a subscriber. You can get your best introductory offer by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Babbage was produced by Rory Galloway, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and hoping not to be replaced by an AI at some point. This is The Economist.